Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Matisse the Red Studio at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Along with Dorta Agassen, my guest Anne Temkin is the co-curator of the exhibition, which investigates Matisse's making of his famed 1911 painting The Red Studio, which is, of course, in MoMA's collection. The show, which is on view through September 10th, features each of the surviving works that Matisse portrayed in The Red Studio, as well as related archival photographs, correspondence, and related paintings and drawings. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by MoMA, IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $55. On the second segment, Stephanie Weisberg joins me to discuss assembly required at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation. Quick reminder, if you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, and please give us a review on Apple Podcasts too. Ann Temkin, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston will host the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery tour of portraits of President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama by artists Kahinda Wiley and Amy Sherald. The exhibition contemplates how portraiture has given visual form to ideas of power, identity, status, and legacy throughout history. Experience the power and beauty of these celebrated works now on view. For tickets and info, visit mfah.org tickets. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Isamu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. The exhibition follows sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinin, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. The Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art presents Maya Lin, A Study of Water, a solo exhibition that brings together a selection of the internationally acclaimed artists' large-scale sculptural interpretations of water. The exhibition features a site-responsive installation using tens of thousands of polished glass marbles that map waterways onto the walls and floor of the gallery. Maya Lin, A Study of Water, is on view only at the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art in Virginia Beach, April 21st through September 4th. Admission is free. Reserve your tickets now at virginiamocha.org. And we're back. Ann Temkin, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. The story of how the Red Studio has come to be a beloved work and a major painting is really as much about the Museum of Modern Art and the works display there and its embrace by especially American artists after World War II, so many years after its making, as it is about anything else. So why do you think it took America and New York for the picture to really take off? Well, what it really took was time. And the question of what if is always looming there because you know, as we all discovered doing the research for this show, 
This is a painting that was commissioned by Matisse's great patron, most important patron, Sergei Shukin. Shukin rejected it, so it stayed with Matisse and ultimately made its way here to MoMA. But if Shukin had accepted it in 1912, when Matisse offered it to him, it would have gone to Moscow. It would have been in Moscow over the course of the decades. You know, Mark Rothko wouldn't have seen it. Barnett Newman wouldn't have seen it. Ellsworth Kelly wouldn't have seen it, et cetera, et cetera. I could name so many, many more. And in fact, one of the stunning facts is that the same year that we bought the picture is the year that Stalin actually closed the Museum of Modern Art in Moscow from public view at all. Wow, 1949, by the way. 1948, actually. Oh, 48, yes. Acquisition, um, uh, accession. To oh, right. Saying that, you know, these were basically poisoning Russians with um, bourgeois ideas. So it's really a stunning, stunning example of how the kind of accidents and, and small little detours and, you know, not seemingly major decisions along the way in history end up having immense impact in ways that you could have never foreseen. But so to get back to, you, to your question, really, I think this was a 1911 painting that was, to use the well-worn phrase, you know, ahead of its time. And it really did take a couple of generations further to have the eyes that were needed to really see this painting. You know, and that's a very, very common story in the history of art. It's also a picture that almost immediately traveled to London, New York, Chicago, and Boston, which might have been the four major cities least prepared for it. <laughs> <laughs> Although that said, you know, it didn't even get shown at all in Paris, right? It didn't get shown in Paris. It's really important for us to remember that these things that we think of as masterpieces today were not born masterpieces. And in the case of the Red Studio, even the artist who painted it was by no means sure that this is what this painting was. Or where it would go physically or, or conceptually. It's a, it's a really interesting moment. And of course, everything changes again for Matisse in all of Europe a few years after he makes the painting, which kind of resets a lot of things, including art history. Let's, let's kind of dive into the painting. There's a super fun chapter in the catalog, especially if you're an archives nerd like I am, about the studio that Matisse builds for himself in EC. And I mean, it was awesome for Matisse to get to do this because we all know that he had spent pretty much his entire career to that point working in small cramped spaces. Think, for example, of the great 1903 studio under the eaves at the Fitzwilliam at Cambridge, which is kind of an early cousin to this work. So as you looked at pictures of Matisse's then pretty new studio in the Matisse archives, what most struck you about the relationship between the physical space Matisse built and the picture he would make of it? So you're absolutely in, <laughs> in, in good company with me on having been utterly, you know, obsessed by this story of, of how this physical space of the studio came to be. It was a really modern studio for a man who wanted to be a modern artist and make paintings that were, you know, uniquely modern. It was basically like a predecessor of a prefabricated building. 
like how you think of how in the United States in the early part of the 20th century, people ordered houses from Sears Roebuck, for example. And, you know, so we have all of these documents in the exhibition, which are the exchanges between Matisse and the building company saying, yeah, we want it to be 10 meters by 10 meters. We want it to be this high. We want the floors to be of wood. We want the ceiling to be skylit. And Matisse at 42 years old is for the first time really being able to think about how he wants his workplace to be set up. So Matisse at 40 years old is for the first time thinking, here's where I want to work. Here's exactly what I want my workplace to look like. And it was extremely functional. It was very utilitarian. But there were also these touches of graciousness. So it was basically a big square building, 10 meters by 10 meters, which is about 33 feet by 33 feet. But then after it's assembled on this this lot that adjoins the property where his house was, we have the letter where he requests that they add on this very beautiful, or not beautiful, but very gracious little front entryway with steps and a sort of vestibule into the studio. And so it was clearly a place that he wanted to be welcoming, where his family could come, where visitors or clients could come. You know, it was almost, for me, the request for that front entrance was sort of like, I want the studio to be my workplace, but I'm also aware it's like my whole universe. You know, I'm going to spend more time in here than I'm going to spend in my house, which is true of almost any artist today as well. So I want it to be comfortable. I want it to be welcoming. And I want it to have this almost personal feeling. So we were kind of obsessive about all of these documents about the construction of the studio, both because it proved that Matisse was very deliberately building you know, his ideal workspace, but also in terms of the Red Studio, what it allowed us to prove is that no matter how imaginary the Red Studio looks, it's actually a perfectly accurate factual documentation of that space at that time. And that was just stunning to us to realize the way that Matisse was able to toggle between this completely imaginary seeming picture and a picture that's an absolutely true document of a real place. To the point about the vestibule and stairs in front of the studio, there are two great photographs of Matisse, family, friends, and dogs treating that space as exactly the kind of welcoming, gathering, human, you know, kind of friendly space that that you described. There is also a photograph of the interior of the studio dated to about October, November 1911. And what's really striking to me about that photograph, and I, as far as I understand, we don't know who took it, we can identify things in that photograph that are in the painting. And then we can also identify where Matisse departed within the painting from how the studio was. And I imagine that finding this photograph was, you know, a pretty, pretty good sized moment for you. Yeah. <laughs> so what about, what about the photograph and its relationship to what we see in the painting? Did you kind of go to school on? So for example, everybody has known that that 
bit of almost looks like an Agnes Martin painting to us at the far left edge of the red studio. You know, everyone sort of assumed that was a curtain window. But when you see this photograph that you're talking about, you realize indeed it was a curtained window, but it was a window that was part of the front door to the studio. So actually, you know, what you see at, at the very left edge of, of the red studio painting is the front door right into the room. And, and that felt amazing to us to realize that this was sort of a, the, the door, the doorway into Matisse's own private cosmos. He was, you know, literally portraying a door at that far left. Yeah, that's a pretty, it's, it's a, a couple of diaphanous, uh, whitish, Amelie Matisse nose-colored drapes that are there at the left-hand side of the painting. One other kind of archival find that I got a, a huge kick out of, in fact, it was maybe my favorite image in the entire catalog, it's the publication of a draft of a letter that Matisse wrote to Shkuken on February 1st, 1912. And I strongly suspect you and your team loved the letter, to, or the draft letter, too, because you more or less based a whole chapter of the catalog around it. What was that letter and why is it either important or at least revealing about both the painting and kind of Matisse's mindset at this point? It's such a classic example of an artist really trying to talk about what they've just done when they haven't even maybe really digested it themselves. I mean, it reminded me very much of Van Gogh's letters to his brother Theo, actually, where Matisse is going into such detail about this color is here, that color is here, this over here is this other color. And he's telling his patron, here's what I've done. And then there's this incredible moment that he's writing in the margin at the very top of the last page of the letter just before he closes off with a, you know, thank you very much. He said, did I tell you it's a, my studio? And in fact, earlier in the letter, he had told him, these are the objects in my studio. And so I think what we get is such an up-close picture, like we rarely get, of an artist's own effort to put into words something for someone he's very close to and who, who trusts him and yet who is also has the power at that moment to accept or reject the purchase of his painting. And Matisse is kind of pouring out this bit by bit description of what's here, what's there. And yet because all we have is the draft, because all of Shukin's archives were destroyed in the draft, you see Matisse crossing out and rewording and recrossing out and clearly taking enormous pains to describe this thing he had done. And that sort of privileged closeness to an artist is, is very, very rare to find. The scratching out you describe is often almost violent, excessive in its thoroughness. And as I looked at the image of you know, the, the, the letter, the, the, the image in the catalog, I kept thinking that this is writerly pentimenti, that we're seeing Matisse do in words what we've become so accustomed to seeing in his paintings for all these decades. And we were really, really fortunate in that for the first time ever, the archives agreed to lend to the exhibition 
the real documents. So we don't have facsimiles. We have that actual 1912 draft. We have the actual reply Shukin sent to Matisse saying, no, thank you. I'm sure it must, his words were, I'm sure it must be very interesting, but no, thank you. And to have those 110-year-old pieces of paper, you know, their charisma after all these years is still so, so present. The, the most obvious thing that anybody could possibly ever notice about the painting is that it's red, 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 very red. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a moment. Matisse attempts, and it must be said, very often achieves this kind of chromatic flattening a number of times in these very years. There's the Moroccan Cafe from 1912-13, which Matisse himself suggested was substantially about Puvi, about whom we'll talk later. There's the, the conversation from 1908 to 1912 at the Hermitage, in which the blue chromatic flattening of space may be understood as a metaphor for the flattening of the relationship between Matisse and his wife Amelie. And of course, the arabesque behind them, the, the ironwork behind them in that painting spells N-O-N, no. Do you think the vermilion red and the flattening of space in the red studio carries within it any such similar metaphorical or external ideas or references? Writers have been thinking about that for 75 years. There are all sorts of theories. I'm a pretty fact-oriented art historian and curator, so I tend not to do that myself. But there's no question that this particular red called Venetian red does have a really powerful history in Matisse's own work and in the history of art altogether. It's a red, it's an earth red. So it's an earth red that in fact comes from clay in, in the earth. It's called Venetian red because one of the earliest mines for it was outside of Venice. But it's really clay that can be found anywhere. And depending where it's found, it's, you know, this degree of red or, or brown, more or less. But it's definitely a kind of brick red, earth red are the things it's often been called. So it does have a kind of architectural aspect to it. And in fact, if you think about the cave paintings in Lascaux or Altamira, those are made with what we would call Venetian red because it was just the earth that the painters, you know, were able to grab and use. So it's ancient. It's, you know, intimately connected with the whole history of painting. And it has a very, very powerful background in mural painting. You know, when, when painting was just done directly on walls, not necessarily in caves, but in early Renaissance buildings. So I think Matisse would have known all that, that he was taking a material, a color that was venerable. And, and, and in the case of the cave paintings, you know, French, French, French. Yeah, yeah. And that it, this is very typical of him in every way that when he wants to do something absolutely experimental, he grounds it in a traditional context. So just like the painting of a studio, right? That's a, that's a centuries-old subject. It's not like it was some wild subject. But it's like he knows if I do something that's in an absolutely traditional form, the way I upend that form is going to be all the more apparent. The Matisse paintings that Matisse represents in the Red Studio, he's pretty true to the colors of the paintings within this painting. 
with one exception, Lilex 2. What is the different color he introduces into Lilex 2, and why do you think he does it? It's a really striking thing. So when, and particularly in the exhibition, when you see the real Lilux 2, and you see these sort of pale yellowy bodies of the three women, and then you look over at the Red Studio, and you look at the depiction of Lilux 2 in the upper right, and you realize that the three women are Venetian red. And this was something that Matisse did when he came back and repainted the floor and walls Venetian red. He didn't initially make the three women in Lilux Venetian red. They were more or less what they were in, in the real painting. And then when he came back with the Venetian red, he said, oh, I'm going to make these three women's bodies the same red. And in a very formal, purely painterly terms, it kind of locks that painting into the wall. You know, it's not on the wall, it's almost in the wall because these three red figures are grounded in all of the red around them on the wall. But it's also an incredibly fascinating decision because Matisse would certainly have known that it wasn't just a painterly decision that by making these three women have this red skin, he was sort of entering into a very lively dialogue at that time, which had to do with the representation of non-European figures in avant-garde painting. And all of the host of issues that raised about modern European society's worries about what they thought of as the classical European ideals and traditions. To what degree that was deliberate or intentional on Matisse's part, no way to know. And of course, that's a, that's an idea he had been engaging since, you know, at least 1907. I mean, there's the famous sculpture Two Negresses, which is based on a photograph, was based on a photograph. There's Blue Nude, Memory of Biskra from 1907, which was, Serge Gilbo argues, although not in print, in, in conversation, was based on postcards and reclining nude one, Aurora, also from 1907, which is very much an engagement with Michelangelo. But as it as the destruction of reclining nude one led directly and immediately to the painting of blue nude, there's possibly to probably a relationship there. So I think that's a really interesting point and question. One of the things about the way he repainted or remade Lilux 2 in the Red Studio is that right in front of it are two sculptures. One is a, a plaster head of Jeanette. I think it's Jeanette 4 that no longer exists, but it's in plaster in, in the painting, and a bronze uh, 1908's decorative figure. So there are three sculptures in this painting. All three are painted exactly the color they were in real life, if you will. So there's a terracotta sculpture that's painted a terracotta color. As I look at the painting, I'm never very surprised that the paintings are true to the colors Matisse painted in those paintings, with the exception of Lilux. But it always jumps out to me that here are three sculptures painted three different colors made in three different materials. I'm not sure I have a question except for, have you noticed the same thing and do you have an answer for it that has an explanation for it or an engagement with it that I'm struggling to, to find myself? <laughs> well, I, I love it that even for sculpture, and this, by the way, was the period of 
Matisse's life, the few years before he painted the Red Studio, in which he was most prolific in sculpture, and when sculpture was, for example, one of the subjects that he taught in his academy during those years from about 1908 to 1911. So sculpture was in the forefront of his practice, even though we so rarely think of him as a sculptor as opposed to as a painter. But so, you know, it's not surprising at all that at that moment in 1911, that there are indeed three sculptures in in the painting and three sculptures that, as you say, he nonetheless portrays by means of color, right? The ochre, the brown, and the white. And it's not only the three mediums of sculpture that he's eager to get into the painting, clay, bronze, and plaster, but it's the process of making a sculpture, right? So you begin with clay, you model the clay with your fingers, that we see in the terracotta nude. You transform the clay piece into a plaster mold. That's the stage at which we see the Jeanette. And then a bronze is cast from the plaster. And that's what we see the seated, the decorative figure. So you have a story of the making of sculpture right in this painting through the combination of those three. You and your co-authors note in the catalog that Matisse includes works from, I think, 1898 and forward in this picture in the Red Studio, but he leaves out fauvism pretty much entirely. Why do you think he, so to speak, excuses the fauve period from the picture? Again, impossible to know. We're pretty convinced that the paintings that are on the wall in the Red Studio were on the wall. Yeah, in the actual studio, yeah. Right. These aren't works that he curated because I'm going to make this painting of some paintings. I think that's what he was living with. You know, he had paintings, obviously, by that time that were sold to loyal clients like the Stein family or Shukin in Moscow, a few German or Scandinavian Clients, very, very tiny body of supporters. But there were plenty of paintings like the ones in this picture that had not sold to anybody yet. So a lot of what's in this painting, I think, was happenstance. Like these were in the picture because these were what he had on the wall. And one of his famous remarks from the essay he wrote in 1908 called Notes of a Painter was that he doesn't he didn't like to leave his fauvist paintings hanging on the walls because they reminded him and this is a bad paraphrase of moments of nervousness that there was a kind of nervosity to early fauve paintings that in that kind of excited brush strokes and the the kind of intensity of the composition and the color that was not the serenity that he was interested in by 1911 so I, you know, a lot of commentators have said that there are deliberately no high fauvist paintings in the Red Studio because he didn't want that nervosity on his walls. A painting like The Young Sailor from 1906 is technically a fauvist painting, but it's one where that excitement of line has, has been changed into just these big flat areas of, in fact, very intense, but not agitated color, really commanding color. 
So that's one theory that people have talked about. Another is that those earlier paintings were not nourishing what he was doing right then in 1911. Like that was behind him. And that these more recent paintings from the last three or four years were the ones that he needed to sort of take his next steps and what he wanted to surround himself with were the things that were going to be like fuel for what he was immediately up to. And that Fauvism was already history in a way in his own mind. But as you mentioned, there is that one exception. There's that 1898 painting, which is already 13 years old at the time he paints the Red Studio. And that's a painting he made during the first year of his marriage, during his first year out of art school, and on his trip to Corsica, which was his first encounter with the Mediterranean. And often later in life, Matisse spoke about that visit to Corsica as a life-changing event when he really encountered that Mediterranean climate and light that, you know, as of 1917, he moved to the south of France just to be in full time and was so, so important for his art. And you'll see that the picture from Corsica, that landscape in Corsica, is just leaning on the floor. It's not hanging on the wall. And one might speculate, and be right or wrong, who knows, that that's a picture that Matisse did pull in for the purpose of being in the Red Studio as he painted it, right? Like, here's a bit of autobiography. I want to sneak into the picture here. Yeah, that's a fascinating, 1898 is a pretty fascinating moment. At the end of the 19th century, Matisse begins to skate toward what will become Fauvism six or seven years later. And then he pulls back from that experimentation to uh, his biographer, Hilary Sperling, theorizes, I think convincingly, that a scandal in Matisse's wife's family exploded across the national news at the time, and that Matisse kind of couldn't handle everything at once, retreated a bit, and then advanced again in, in 1904, 5, 6, 7. And, and the way you describe that 1898 picture as being present in the Red Studio is really interesting because when I look at the Red Studio, that's always where my eye goes first. It's kind of off, off angle, akimbo, whatever the word is, in a way that it calls your attention to it. And then to my eye, the entire painting spirals in, in, in like a literal spiral up and out from that 1898 work, which is, you know, again, you were talking about some autobiography here. I think that supports that. Let me kind of pa posit a second reason about why I think he mostly excuses the Fauve period here and see if you buy it. The, the Red Studio is, as we've been discussing, a picture that plays with the flattening of pictorial space. It includes one or two faint suggestions of depth and perspective, but, but pretty much always in, in ways that are contradictory, such as the vine that's growing around one of the sculptures, the kind of head fake corner of a wall. <laughs> Could Matisse have been thinking... With those Fauve works, and in that period from the 19 aughts, I arrived at the flattening of space before Picasso did, and of course, back then, Brock was with me. I've moved on from flatness to playing with the tension between flatness and depth. I don't need to play on that field again or even refer to it. I did it. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's a no. <laughs> I, you know, one reason I bring it up is because, so one of the, the, the strategies... The, 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 the curatorial team took here was to live within the painting, to live within Matisse's work, which is awesome and makes, makes all the sense in 
the world. But I think one of the things that leaves people like me to wonder about is what from the broader Parisian and French art world of 1911 might Matisse be engaging with here. And because this is a podcast and not the catalog, let's muse on that a little bit. When you think of things from outside Matisse's own practice that he might be engaging with or thinking through here, what comes to mind? At that time, it was a real issue for Matisse, I think, to get beyond what European art history had to give him, right? So he absolutely venerated Cezanne and so much else, you know, going back to the early Renaissance. But like for Picasso, like for so many other people in that first decade of the 20th century, there was this real thought that if they looked other to places other than Europe, that was real, really where the important injection of newness was going to come from. So whether you're talking African sculpture or Russian icons or Japanese prints or Islamic metalwork. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Matisse and his peers were like sponges for external influence, all of which, or much of which at least, was newly available to them because of the colonial interaction of, say, France itself um, and, and other European countries. They're their colonialist interventions brought to Paris or other European countries new input, new artifacts, new visions of art that to them were so stimulating and so challenging to the history of European painting that for Matisse, at least, this, I think, is, is where his interest was really focused much more than what his peers in Paris were doing. It was, you know, how could his own art develop along its own trajectory? He was quite an independent and lonely artist at that time. I mean, that's the thing that's so hard to remember. You know, he was a leader of the avant-garde at the time of Fauvism in 1905-1906. When Picasso came along, Picasso and Brock, who, as you mentioned, Brock sort of defected from Fauvism to Cubism, in 1909-1910, they became the new sensation in Paris. And Guillaume Apollinaire, the great poet and critic, said in 1910, in one of his newspaper pieces, that Matisse was among, quote, the most disparaged artists of the time. Like, it's just really impossible almost for us to reimagine how Picasso's ascension in that 1909, 1910, 1911 moment had really left Matisse sidelined. And literally, he moved from the center of Paris out to EC. And but always this is like a double-edged sword, right? Because he's sidelined, but that also gives him the permission or the kind of freedom to do whatever the heck he wanted, like a sort of nothing to lose situation. I 100% buy that. I mean, I think, I, think, I think the whole section in the catalog and in the show related to the studio construction, like really drives 
that point home that Matisse is creating a world apart, such as the photographs of the gardens surrounding the, the studio. But let me play kind of maybe against part the, the reverse Jack Flam here and bring up Picasso and Brock. From the late summer of 1910 through the end of 1911, Picasso and, and Brock are obviously in the throes of their Cubist partnership. And this is the exact moment when their palette is at the most pared down, when Cubism is browns and black lines, and that's it. Their compositions at this time are increasingly condensing in the centers of canvases with the corners left pretty much empty or even neglected. And I tried to describe their paintings that way because I think that they're kind of the anti-red studio. Matisse is using all four corners and pointedly. He is radiating a painting out from the center. He is using color as big and booming as he can at a time when Picasso and Brock have no idea how to synthesize color with what they're doing. Do you think he could be addressing and engaging what they're doing here? My guess is, you know, no better or worse than anybody else's guess. I personally am less inclined to think of Matisse weighing what he's doing in the context of what that other guy is doing and seeing it more as an internally driven logic. And when you think of these works in relation to Matisse's works of, say, the five years that came before since Bonnard de Vie in 1906, there is such an unbelievable clarity from step to step to step how one leads to the next and one seemingly unprecedented innovation has its roots in something before that I think Matisse is almost exceptionally someone who is on his own journey and less apt than maybe your average great artist to turning his head to the left or the right. You know, one of the things that's interesting about that point is one of the things Matisse was really good at, you know, from, from Bonner to Vive forward, if not even a little bit before, is scale. And this painting is huge. It's about seven feet by six feet. And, and, and so the catalog details a reason for that specific size. Shukin is acquiring other works almost exactly this size. And there was reason to believe he wanted, you know, another one at that size. This is a painting you've gotten to live with for, you know, much of your career, like literally every day. Is there anything about the scale of the painting that has struck you as important beyond the the obvious Shkukin wanting, possibly wanting another painting similar to the size of paintings you already had? Yeah, I mean, you can probably tell from the catalog. <laughs> we became pretty numbers obsessed. Yes. And dimensions <laughs> obsessed. Really interesting. <laughs> And I think, you know, dimension really mattered for Matisse. At that time, there were standard dimensions for pictures, you know, and they had these numbers. So you'd go to the frame, the stretcher store and say, I want a number 20, a number 15, blah, blah. And this number, this, this size had no number. It was, it was bigger than that, than anything they would stock. So we had to order a custom-made stretcher. And in fact, it was the exact same size as Shukin's first commission for Matisse had been in 1908. He asked Matisse for a painting for his dining room to be this six by seven foot size. It was actually in meters, then 220 by 180 centimeters. Matisse made that painting. Shukin asked him to make a painting in blue for his dining room. 
he writes to Shukin in the middle of that and says, you know what, I, I tried it in blue, but you know what, I changed it to red. So now you have a painting that's harmony in red for your dining room. And Shukin loved it. So there's something almost uncanny when, when Shukin asks Matisse three years later to make a set of paintings the same size as Harmony in Red, that Matisse consciously, unconsciously will never know, again, with the Red Studio, takes a painting that hadn't been read and makes it red, almost like exactly like its grandfather or grandmother had been, and repeats that strategy in a picture that like harmony in red is essentially a manifesto for him for his own work you know if you're painting a picture of your studio what is that if not a painting that says here's who i am right now and throughout this period every time matisse had to make a painting to submit to a salon or to make for a certain client he chose these sort of outsized dimensions in a way that made it very, very clear. You know, these aren't just another painting. These are a statement about where I am right now. And he was very thoughtful and deliberate about it. That wasn't chance. One of the really exciting tensions in the work is that it vibrates between decoration, which was a very high form of French art and one that Matisse admired and engaged with, throughout his career, and still life, which was traditionally among the most humble genres for a painter, a French painter, works that were typically made at modest scale and really to modest reception. So what might we take from how Matisse plays those two totally unlike genres off of each other here? I think a lot of it is part of the challenge to the hierarchy, the hierarchy in which paintings of mythological scenes or historical scenes would have been at the very top of academic French arts ranking. And something like a still life or decorative arts would have been lower. And for me, it's so moving that Matisse puts that ceramic plate that he painted with a female nude on it right in the foreground of the picture in what's essentially a kind of still life with the vase, with the nasturtium, with the wine glass, it's like that ceramic plate could almost be like a dinner plate with the little statuette. That's, on the one hand, part of this big interior scene, but it's also a very intimate still life right there at the front of the picture. And with this work of decorative art, this very modest ceramic plate, in that position, I think we have a nod, again, intentional or not, to saying you know, I'm upending this traditional hierarchy of importance as I search for my own new pictorial approach during this first decade of this new century. And, and of course, there's a second still life in, in the Red Studio as well, in the background, if you will, on top of what we read as a dresser. Yes, with all these wonderful little ceramic pieces and what we would say tchotchkes that meant so much to him, you know, and, and that his eyes were omnivorous. And it didn't matter if it was some great old master painting or if it was some little dish that he bought at a flea market. All of it was really fueled for what he was trying to craft as a new vision. And that 
tapestry behind that bureau as well. That, you know, he's putting this, it's the only abstract thing in a way in the whole painting. And this bit of textile that, you know, he was very vocal about how much textile was important to him for his own painting. And, you know, puts that there as a declaration, just like that plate at the foreground. Here's something. If you want to know about how I'm thinking about my new vision, here's an important clue. And, and the colors of the flowers on the plate are just about the same as the colors in that textile, which which kind of binds that whole section of the canvas. It pushes the background forward and the foreground backward. Super Matisse, super Matisse moment. Anne Tempkin, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shape the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego reopens in La Jolla on Saturday, April 9th with the special exhibition Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s. The exhibition explores a transformative 10-year period in Saint-Fall's work when she embarked on two of her most significant series, The Tears, or Shooting Paintings, and the exuberant sculptures of women she called Nanas. Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s is co-curated and co-organized by Jill Dawsey, Senior Curator, Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, and Michelle White, Senior Curator, the Menil Collection Houston. Welcome back. Next up, Stephanie Weisberg joins me to discuss her exhibition, Assembly Required, at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation through July 31st. The show features eight artists, Francis Elise, Rashid Areen, Sia Armajani, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter, who believe or believed that public action is vital to transform society. The work in Weisberg's exhibition invites a viewer's physical participation, which we'll discuss. Stephanie Weisberg, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What brought you to organizing an exhibition constructed around 
public action and active participation in society and how artists have engaged with it. Yeah, the idea for this exhibition started formulating in 2019 at a moment in which a series of global social and political urgencies were very much determining everyday life, I would say, for most Americans, not that they aren't still. There were a slightly different shade at the moment. And we had been asking ourselves internally at this at the Pulitzer, how can museums be a space for hope and optimism while still also facing and acknowledging the complexities of the issues that we face today in contemporary society. And in in thinking through that question, I had thought about Hannah Arendt and her 1958 book, The Human Condition, and specifically her term action, which she defines as the outcomes that people create through exchange with one another. And that can only be created through collaboration and through exchange in person. And it struck me as an interesting angle to enter into a conversation about the ways that artists have used participation in their work from the 1950s to the current moment. And then in 2020, you know, we were all very much surprised, of course, by the pandemic. And we spent some time really reflecting on the exhibition. Of course, it really was not a possibility to open the exhibition. I believe it was originally scheduled for late 2020, early 2021, I want to say, but at the time seemed like the worst possible timing. We delayed the exhibition, you know, reorganized our calendar. And in fact, I think it was really to the benefit of the exhibition that we delayed it. It has felt, I think, much more meaningful of a premise and a series of questions to be asking for an exhibition that opens in the spring of 2022 in a moment where the museum feels kind of more comfortable for the first time bringing people into the space together and I'm confident about our ability to do that, at least relatively safely. And I think for a lot of people coming out of, or at least emerging partially from a long period of deep isolation, it's been a meaningful moment to engage with these artworks and with one another and to think about how artists have encouraged dialogue and new perspectives through their work. Two things before we turn to the works in the show itself. I think it's worth noting that for Pulitzer audiences, these are not going to be unusual ideas. The, the Pulitzer has, you know, really, since it opened, embraced projects that are about public action, that are about the link between individuals and artists doing things, actively participating in a broader society. Like just one example that jumps off the top of my head. You know, a few years ago, Aram Hansa-Fuentes did a project with the Pulitzer that was all about public action with the museum as an enabling hub. So these these are ideas your audience is more than ready for. Yeah, I think that would be the case. You know, we have different audiences, I would say, who come to the Pulitzer. So it probably, I think, depends a little bit. But there had been conversations among my colleagues prior to the exhibition, wondering, will people feel comfortable interacting with the artworks and what do we need to do to make sure that people feel 
empowered to engage with the artworks. It turns out since we've opened the show, that has not been an issue at all. If anything, it's been quite the opposite. We have to think about like, okay, how do we, you know, we got to preserve these exhibition copies, at least so they make it through to the end of the exhibition. But no, people have been jumping right in for sure. I mean, the first work that opens the exhibition is Yoko Ono's painting to be stepped on. And oftentimes when I give tours, as I'm waiting for people to gather in the entrance gallery, I will watch and see whether people avoid the work or step over it. And yeah, people really jump right in, feel very empowered to engage with the works. It's it's really fun to see. And I, as you say, the Pulitzer has worked with a number of artists who think about art's role in the public realm and around bringing people together. Also a number of activist artists, another besides Aram Hans Cifuentes group that I think fits the bill about what you're describing is Monument Lab, who did a residency at the Pulitzer and invited members of the public to participate in an audit of monuments in St. Louis. When we all go to museums, we're used to not touching, which I'm mindfully saying right after you <laughs> you referenced Yoko Ono's painting to be stepped on. So we're used to not touching. We're used to standing and looking. And so the museum has published a, a guide for the show that includes something unusual. For each artwork, there's a literal instruction under the heading, How to Interact. So was using the museum-going experience as a metaphor for each American civic responsibility a motivating construct? Yes, I suppose I would say. I wouldn't necessarily limit it to the context of America or Americans, especially because the show is so global. Of course, most of our audience are Americans, and in fact, many of them are St. Louisans. And certainly thinking about how artists invite members of the public to become co-conspirators and active participants in shaping and reimagining the world around us is incredibly important to this exhibition, but also there is thinking about the role that museums can play in allowing space for those same activities. I think the, the exhibition is an invitation for people to think about their agency in the public realm and their relationship to one another and how each of us are intrinsically tied to one another and each of our actions affects those around us. And my hope is that the series of experiences with these artworks follows people outside of this exhibition. It's really not about making a historical argument as much as it is offering a series of experiences that people might be able to take away with them and inform their lived experience. And I think in many ways, as a curator, my intention was to select artworks that were open-ended enough that while they were rooted at the time of their creation in a particular social and political context, that people could bring their everyday life and contemporary perspectives to the work and realize it in a manner that was still very much in the spirit of its creation. You mentioned Ono's painting to be stepped on as kind of inaugurating the show. What, what is the work and why did Ono want people to step on it? <laughs> 
Yeah, so Yoko Ono's painting to be stepped on is an artwork that she first created in 1960. It was, in a sense, kind of a accidental byproduct of another artwork. She was producing a painting, a circular painting, and had a scrap of canvas left over, which she placed on the floor with the score, a work to be stepped on, accompanying it. And this was first staged in her Chambers Street loft in Soho in New York, where she hosted a number of happenings and events related or not even related that that were formed the core of the Fluxus activities in New York in that time period. So she and her contemporaries and fellow members of Fluxus were very interested in two things. Number one, bringing the public into a more active role as a co-participant in the creation of the work. So the work is a canvas on the floor until it's activated through a, a person walking over it, at which time the full artwork is realized. And then the other aim that was really important to Ono and her peers was resisting commodification in the art world by producing artworks from mundane and readily available materials, producing artworks that are very difficult to make saleable, and producing artworks that could be replicated and distributed en masse. For instance, her book Grapefruit, which was published first in 1964, and one of the scores in that book is Painting to be Stepped On, includes over 100 short instructional works that invite people to finalize and realize the artwork. I think there are also within the show works of art that work with each other in really interesting and unintentional, at least for the artist's ways. And so I want to next raise two such works, one by Francis Elise and one by Rashid Areen. The Elise in the show is When Faith Moves Mountains, from 2002-03. I'm pretty sure that Elise and I discussed this work when he was on the show in 2013. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. So what happens in that work and how does it fit the the show's construct? So in Francis Elise, When Faith Moves Mountains, Elise had traveled to Peru during the end of the Fujimori dictatorship, which was a time of great strife in Lima and in Peru, and then returned just a few years later in 2002 to stage this piece, When Faith Moves Mountains, which invited 500 student volunteers to gather together and collectively move a sand dune by way of shoveling sand throughout the course of the day. And ultimately, they shifted the dune by about four inches. To me, the work, it ends the exhibition in our physical building. The Rashida Reed work is actually the next work that viewers would encounter because it's outside of the uh, museum space in our courtyard. And what I really like about this piece is its dual nature of optimism. You know, there's this very sweeping gesture of faith and in achieving the impossible. But at the same time, you know, the slogan for the project is maximal effort, minimal results. And I think Elise is very much acknowledging that there is an enormous difficulty and perhaps sometimes even an impossibility in producing lasting change. 
And what's really beautiful about the work is that people are engaging in these efforts despite the odds against them. I also think that it asks questions about what is needed in order to realize more lasting change. I think sustained effort versus, you know, a one-off performance or activation. To me, it felt important to acknowledge the fact that the exhibition and these artists are not suggesting that, oh, you activate a single work. You engage with Leisha Clark's dialogue goggles and then poof, (laughs) transformation has happened. I think these artworks are an invitation to start thinking about our interactions with each other differently rather than an end in and of themselves. I will also say that this work and one other, Ligia Pape's Divisor, are the two works in which members of the public interact with the artwork in more of a traditional viewing engagement because they, their video documentation largely and archival documentation as well in the, in the case of Elise. For me, in establishing the parameters of the exhibition, because there's so many artworks that fall under the rubric of participation, but one of the criteria that I Uh, determined in organizing this exhibition is that the participation must be visible or must occur within the galleries. So in, in most instances of the artworks in this exhibition, the members of the public and anyone who engaged with these artworks are the intended audience. When they activate the works or when they engage with the artworks, the, the pieces are fully realized. In this case, the members of the public who enter the museum are not necessarily the, the core intended audience of the work. It's the people who participated with the work whose documentation is made available. But the act of participation is visible, so you don't just see a final product and understand only through didactics and interpretation that that participation was core to the, to the work. How... Does the arena offer visitors the opportunity to, in a way, physically carry out a version of what they saw in the Elise? You know, I love (laughs) giving tours and talking to people about exhibitions because I always learn new things based on the way that people, uh, based on the questions that people ask. And the question you just asked is a good example of that. Because while I, of course, thought about the arena in relationship to other pieces I, in the exhibition, I haven't made that direct link with the Elise. I mean, it seems really obvious now that you're saying it, but and it's, it's not an earth-shattering idea. But the connection between the two of them specifically in that way, I hadn't explicitly thought of. But it's true. I mean, the, the idea behind Rashid Arena Zero to Infinity is simply a grid of cubes. The work can consist of up to 100 cubes, but the version at the Pulitzer has 36, and they're open frame wood cubes that are arranged at the beginning of the day in a grid. And it's very much a reference to minimalist forms, which inspired Irene when he moved to the UK in the 1960s. But Irene had a mission to democratize minimalist forms and so invited members of the public to disrupt the grid by rearranging the cubes into infinite forms. And so forms can be stacked because of their construction. They can be stacked at angles, not just directly on top of one another. And so there really are just countless permutations and we invite 
viewers every day to come and experiment with the work. It's really fun to see from the windows inside the museum how people are reconfiguring the sculpture and it it very much impacts perceptions of the architecture around it. You know, there's the Ondo building with the concrete, but also our Richard Serra sculpture Joe adjacent. So it's always kind of an evolving aesthetic landscape there. And I, I suppose in some sense, I th- now that I'm thinking about it, I almost feel like it's rather than a direct corollary to when Faith Moves Mountains, I almost feel like it's an inverse because the idea is so much more subversive <laughs> because moving moving a mountain is so much a metaphor for overcoming enormous obstacles in in life whereas zero to infinity feels very much about about facing and reconfiguring power structures but also about not having a single shared goal so each person who worked as a volunteer on when faith moves mountains were working in unison towards a sing, in a single direction towards a unified and very clearly determined goal whereas zero to infinity is much more about chaos and randomization i found that as i was going through the works in the show i found myself thinking oh there's a work take the aleoidasica for example I found myself thinking of the government and political condition to which he was responding, even as I thought about the work. So Oidasika was making the work in your show, which is one of his penetrables from the mid, late, late 70s. You know, he had, he had lived through a period where Brazil was led by a military government that was maybe not authoritarian, but was certainly oppressive. Uh, maybe it was authoritarian. And, you know, we're at a moment where in the United States where federal governments under perhaps a previous administration and certainly state governments now are being oppressive toward certain traditionally and historically marginalized populations in a way we haven't seen in, in a few years, quite a few years. Are you hoping visitors will make some of those connections? Do you think they might? How do, how, how do those connections work for you within the context of what you're presenting? Yeah, absolutely. I do think many people make connections to the political context in the United States and even internationally in relationship to this exhibition. I've heard many people that I've given tours to make these connections. I think Oitasika is a wonderful example of that as, I mean, each of the neoconcretists sort of making work in the wake of the who in Brazil and the extremely oppressive military government that took hold. I think Elisa Pape's work, Divisor, is also a great example in which a lot of people see metaphorical resonance, in particular because this work, Divisor, which invites members of the public, in the particular the one that we have on view at the Pulitzer as children, to unite under a, a single sheet of fabric and move throughout, move collectively together, kind of as a single unit. The work was most iconically staged just prior to the military dictatorship in Peru suspending public assembly. And so the work stood as an incredibly powerful metaphor for public agency in the face of very oppressive control. And 
yes, I mean, those are some of the connections that I had been thinking through most directly when I originally organized the exhibition in 2019. And it's interesting because, as I said before, so many of these works are, I've acknowledged the political context of each of the works, and it's very important to the core of the exhibition that the works are responding to, to some sense of restriction, many of them coming from governmental control. But I've intentionally also not made it an exhibition about tracing those political histories in a very overt way. It's not a historical exhibition. And as I mean, there there are works that are date as far back to the 1950s in the exhibition, but the show is much more intentionally left open to interpretation. And part of that openness also means that people have thought about works like Franz Erhard Walter's first work set and his experience you know, as an artist who grew up in Germany during World War II and being part of reconstruction in Germany and really thinking about art's role in resisting atrocities and totalitarian governments, many people have brought up the events in Ukraine in relationship to to that artwork and, and his background. And so I think there are many different associations that people make, and the intention behind the show is that it's left open enough that, that throughout the world will continue to change <laughs> over the next four months of the run of the show. And these artworks were created in such a way that people will find meaning in them in, in some way, no matter what's happening in the world during that time. And in that, Walter, you just mentioned, of course, you can either prioritize the self and, and, and work for the individual, or you can prioritize being with a group and working for the group or within the group, which also speaks to a fundamental American tension in the American present, particularly during, during the pandemic. Yes, that's absolutely true. The work, the first work set, involves 58 what Hans Erhard Walter called elements, which are essentially fabric constructions that have a loose set of instructions for activation. And so in order to realize the works, these these pieces of fabric are unfolded by from a single person to up to nine. And then there's a final shape that's realized. So some require two people to counterbalance each other's weight at either end of a long band of fabric. Others require people to work together to walk backwards until their fabric that's rested over their head is pulled taut enough that they can, their eye lines come into view. And I think what is very elegantly and clearly illustrated immediately through engaging with these works is that we affect one another. And so while one could try in some sense to be self-serving in these works, Ultimately, it's not a very successful approach. It might be in the short term, but actually sooner or later with these works, if, if your partner fails, you fail. So if someone, if someone falls, you likely will too, because you're balancing against each other's weight. And so the only way to be truly self-serving within these works is to select one of the elements that only involves a single person. Otherwise, I think it very quickly and clearly illustrates the fallacy of individualism. Excellent. Stephanie Weisberg, thanks very much. Thank you so much. 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.